Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders who are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders of teams who are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and creating life-changing years for the people they lead. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Sales Leadership United, part of the Jepson Performance Group. Video segments of this and other episodes of the podcast can be found at Sales Leadership United, hosted on Patreon. Think of Sales Leadership United like a Home Depot for sales leaders. It's a comprehensive resource for sales leaders with over 100 hours of tools, training, and insights sorted and tagged into every category you might need to help you become an elite sales leader. A private podcast, sales leadership training, sales meeting insights, video insights, and much more are waiting for you to check out at Sales Leadership United. Don't reinvent sales leadership. Tap into proven tools and techniques used by many of today's most successful sales leaders and check out Sales Leadership United today. Now, get ready for some serious insights from this week's sales leader who's making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we got you. Hello, and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we're going to have a conversation I have been looking forward to for a long time. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Chris Croner to the show. Dr. Croner is a principal with Sales Drive, a firm specializing in the selection and deployment of high-performing salespeople. Now, Dr. Croner is a co-author of a book that I really think you're going to enjoy reading. The book's called Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again, and it's a book that I've read and I found super insightful. His work around the concept of individual drive was something that made me know I had to have him on the show. And with a title of a book like that, and 45,000 sales leaders strong here, uh, you all know why I had to have him here, and I bet you're just as excited as I am. Now, Chris and his team at Sales Drive help companies all around the world perfect the process of hiring salespeople. They do it with a number of innovative tools that help fill teams up uh, because they have this great ability to help people identify those that have maybe the most crucial characteristic. And that's going to be what we dive into today. The characteristic is drive. So I'm very pumped. I'm super excited. We're addressing a topic we've never hit in about four years of running this show. I can't wait to dive in. Dr. Croner, welcome so much to our show and thank you for joining me. Rob, thank you so much for having me, sir. Very much. I look forward to being of service to you and your audience today. It's going to be a fun one. We we have a great base of listeners, and and every one of them knows that hiring great salespeople is one of the most important uh, roles that we have. And you're going to do a lot of good for a lot of people today. So I'm pumped. But before we get into it, why don't you take a couple of minutes and just tell us about Sales Drive and what you guys do for your customers? Thank you. Yes, yeah, Sales Drive helps companies identify candidates with the three non-teachable characteristics essential for success as hunters using our online assessment, the Drive Test. We've worked with over 1,400 companies around the world, and it's always our pleasure to be of service to companies of every size. Hmm. I can't wait to learn more about those assessment tools, and I know you're going to make a few things accessible to our listeners. So uh, you got some stuff for our listeners at the end, and, and I can't wait for them to learn more about it. Um so that's a big mission that you guys have. That's a really big mission. What led you to focusing your work on hiring salespeople? Like, I don't know an expert in that like you. I know a lot of people in the sales world. You're one of the very first ones I've ever met that really owns this discipline. What got you into this and what, what made this become your life's work? 
Good question. It's almost like when you ask a salesperson, what caused you to get into sales? Many salespeople will say, you know, I just kind of got into it. Yeah. Right? You know, I just kind of fell into it. Uh, in my case, my PhD is in clinical psychology. As I was working on that PhD, I specialized as well in industrial organizational psychology, consulting psychology, delivering consultation to business management. Uh, my first position out of school was at a firm called Whitmer and Associates in the suburbs of Chicago that specialized in executive assessment. So I'm sure you've seen sometimes companies will bring in an, an yep. industrial psychologist to interview a potential VP, potential president to determine do they have the leadership qualities that company needs for someone to really succeed in that role. Okay. They brought me in to design something as rigorous as that, a process as rigorous as that for salespeople, because of course, sales is the lifeblood of any company. And so that's when I began that work back in October of 2002. So I've been at it for 20 years now. Wow. And yep. Yep. So I started out looking at every bit of research that had been published academically in terms of what is it that leads someone to be successful in sales over the last, gosh, 85, almost 90 years now, as well as looking at the work that I was doing, doing behavioral interviews with sales candidates and circling back with their managers thereafter to find out who really does become successful. And that's when I began to collect that data. Uh, started Sales Drive, our company formally in 2005, published the first edition of Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again with my co-author and business partner, Richard Abraham. We published the second edition of Never Hire in January of this year. And there it is. To our people that are going to get the video version of this on Sales Leadership United, there's the book. I actually did a little review on the book Inside Sales Leadership United. And so I'm excited to refer to that a little bit as we talk today. Um, awesome. So let's let's not waste time, man. We, we have a little bit of time here today. It's going to be a really fun conversation. Drive, uh, being driven, uh, sometimes I, I don't know if that's the same as being motivated. I, I can't wait to talk about the difference between drive and motivation. I'm, I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff. Uh, what's drive in your, in your opinion, maybe you have a definition for it. And then maybe more important, why is it so important for a sales organization? Thank you. Yes. So again, backing up just a little bit, you know, we talked about the, you know, our research, looking at all the, the published data, looking at our own work. When we looked at all of that information, all that data, we were trying to decide what is it that leads someone to be successful in sales. And when we looked at it, we found that, again, many of the characteristics that most people would classically expect to be important were still important. Things like, again, persuasiveness, relationship skills, organizational skills. Important to keep in mind, though, Rob, that those are all teachable. Above and beyond any of those by far, though, were these three non-teachable characteristics that continue to stand out and differentiate the highest performers, particularly the hunters. And those are what we call drive. So the first one is what we call the need for achievement. And when we talk about the need for achievement in a salesperson, we're talking about the person who wants to do well simply for the sake of doing well. So the salesperson who's high in need for achievement, they just naturally want to set the bar high, if you will. They want to jump over that, then they want to set it even higher again the next time. So yep. they're constantly focused on producing excellence just for the sake of excellence. Think of that kid in school that just has to get an A. It's that mentality that we're talking about. And many people don't think of that naturally when they think of someone who's successful in sales. But the research shows that that characteristic need for achievement, it's important not only for salespeople, but also, quite frankly, for entrepreneurs. People have to kind of get up every morning and make it happen, and there's nobody standing over them watching them. So as you can imagine, as companies have to hire now more remotely, in many cases, we're finding that that characteristic just continues to become more and more important. So that's the first piece, need for achievement. The second piece is competitiveness. And the competitive salesperson we find really wants to do two things. Number one, they want to be the best in their team. They're always comparing their performance to their peers because they just need to know how they stand, if you will. But number two, they want to win that client or that customer over to their point of view. 
Because to them, uh, psychologically, that sale is kind of like a contest of wills. And then the third piece is optimism. And that's the salesperson's sense of certainty that they will succeed, as well as, of course, their resilience to hang in there when they face the inevitable rejection that a salesperson just has to deal with. So we find it's those three characteristics all together, Rob, need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism that psychologically create sort of the perfect storm, if you will. And collectively, we refer to those three characteristics as drive. That is awesome. What an awesome framework. What an awesome way of looking at it. So your, what your research shows is that these three things, need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism, equals drive. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, so I, 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 I immediately am interested in diving into these things and, and how they work. I, I'm, I'm applying them to myself right now, which is fun to do. You probably hear that all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, are they, are, is any one more important than the other? Are they kind of equal in their importance? Are they, are they like, do you ever find like one, I don't know. I guess you see what I'm saying. Like are, are all of these drivers, that's kind of a weird word for me is drivers of drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are they, are the components, are these components of drive created equal or do they have different weights? Excellent question. And again, we're just talking about salespeople in terms of the, yeah. the elements that lead yep. the salesperson to be successful. It's a very good question though. Uh, yes. In terms of the three elements of drive, we actually do weight them differently. Uh, we have the heaviest weight when we look at them. The most important characteristic is need for achievement. We find although all three of the elements are important, need for achievement is the most important. The second heaviest weight we have on competitiveness, and the third is on optimism. So we do weight them a little bit differently with need for achievement being the most important. Because again, that person who simply wants to do well for its own sake. Oh, again, although, as I mentioned, although it might not be readily apparent uh, when people think about someone who is successful in sales, it's that need for achievement that is the most important piece. When you think about somebody who's going to go out as a hunter, knock on a door, whether that's in person or over the phone, sometimes get that door slammed in their face, then knock on the next door with that much more certainty and passion and conviction. Psychologically, that's a very special person that we're talking about. That is why we zero in so heavily on all three elements, particularly the heaviest weight element, need for achievement. I I really, really like that you separated need from achievement from competitiveness. Because at first blush, I was like, yeah, they're kind of similar. Right. But but they're not, right? I, I mean, can can we talk about the distinction? I'd love to get it in your words than me try to guess and get it wrong. Because I look at those and I think of myself, I I, I used to always say things like, man, I hate losing more than I like winning. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and and I'm like, that's kind of a stupid thing to say. And then I would think of things like I used to treat, not used to, I still do. Like mm-hmm. I would tell as a, as a performance coach, I treat competitors as though there's someone that's trying to stop me from feeding my family. And I treat them as such their yes. mission, like they're honorable people. They're just trying to do the job, but ultimately you're trying to stop me from feeding my family. And as a result, I treat, so I'm highly competitive, like, like sometimes over the top competitive. I don't know how healthy that is. Mm-hmm. And, um, so maybe you can like share a little bit about this thing. Cause I, I see very clearly now the need for achievement is different than I got to beat you. You know what I'm saying? Right. Very, very true. Uh, so need for achievement is something that leads to success in a variety, as you can imagine, of fields of endeavor. When uh, psychologists have looked at the characteristics broadly, not just in sales, but in any sort of field of endeavor that lead to, to success, there's an element of the five main factors of personality called conscientiousness. That's one of the big five, as they call them. There's a facet of that conscientiousness called achievement striving. So that's that piece that leads to success in a variety of disciplines. Someone who wants to climb a mountain, someone who wants to be successful in golf, you know, need for achievement 
is important no matter what the person is doing. It's particularly important in sales or entrepreneurship when it's all up to that person, if you will. But it really looks at the person in their own efforts as they kind of compete against themselves, if you will. Need for achievement is all about, okay, I want to, I want to compete. As I mentioned, I want to set the bar high for myself. I want to exceed that. I want to set it higher again the next day. Every day, I'm asking myself, how can I be better, if you will? And again, I'm comparing myself to myself. <laughs> when we look at competitiveness, now we're bringing in other people. This is the sales element now. Now we're looking at other people. I'm looking at my peers. How do I relate to my peers? How can I be the best on my team? I'm also looking at, again, when I look at that relationship with my competitors uh, in, terms of, in terms of my competitors directly, how can I, as you mentioned, you know, they're, they're, they're honorable, but they're fighting against me to, so, to prevent me from feeding my family. It's, yeah. that, it's my relationship with them. That, so competitiveness is where we start to involve our relationship, if you will. That's really the distinction between the two. You can have someone who works by themselves uh, in it. Antarctica. You know, they can't have a high need for achievement but competitiveness is where we start to involve other people dude it's so interesting i and 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 i can see why you rank need for achievement your research weighs out because like i said that over competitiveness can be dysfunctional mm -hmm. but if it's a subset of i just want to do i want to be elite i want to i want to achieve for the achievement's sake i like that like I, the idea of being average it must like make them sick to their stomach right yes Yes. And again, that's a question we'll often get is, well, Dr. Croner, you're looking for these very competitive salespeople. What, 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 what happens if the person's a bull in the China shop, if you will, yeah. somebody in that says too competitive? Well, that's why we combine it with need for achievement. Because if we've often heard from sales managers, they would much rather have someone that they needed to pull back than that they needed to push. When right. you have someone who's high in need for achievement, if, you, if for any reason you do need to pull them back, again, they're like that kid in school that just has to get an A. They're like a sponge. They're asking themselves, how can I get better for you? You're like the teacher, if you, if you will. Okay, here are some things that you're doing well. Here's how you can become even more powerful. And they will listen to that and they will make adjustments and improve. Because, because remember, they're all also competitive, but at the same time, they want to do well for its own sake. That's why we combine those two. And then combine that with optimism, with looking at the person's you know, expectation that they will succeed, as you can imagine. That's why those three are so powerful together. Uh, so I want to talk about optimism for a second. So, so you don't think optimism is a learned or a, a coached or a choice? You think that people either it's they are, they aren't. Is, am I understanding that correctly? You are. And again, I, I when I when I say that, I'm speaking practically. Okay. So from the clinical side, if you really want to work, you can build optimism, if you will, like Martin Seligman's book, Learned Optimism. Certainly, if you do have the time, but most of our clients don't necessarily have the time with, with a salesperson to put them on the couch and really kind of build and develop that because it really does take time to do that successfully, we, we find. Uh, so in terms of, you know, practically, you know, looking at optimism, there's not much we can do to significantly change it without investing a great deal of time, which we find, in developing someone and changing them and altering them, if you will, in terms of their optimistic expectations. There's a little thing that there's little things out that we can do, uh, but we don't we don't find there's not much you know there's much we can do to alter it. Now back to that point in terms of waiting, we do find sometimes that again you know, we're waiting need for achievement is strongest, competitiveness second, optimism third. Sometimes you may get someone that's a little bit lower on optimism. For, for example, maybe they don't enjoy doing something like cold calling, but their need for achievement and competitiveness are just so strong they'll just push themselves to do whatever it is they need to do to be successful, if you will. So that's why we kind of give them the opportunity if they are a little bit lower on optimism to kind of make it up a little bit, if you will, when it comes to the overall drive score. So where does motivation fit into this? Is motivation kind of the same thing or is it different? 
similar. It's another way of saying the same thing, if you will. It's almost like yeah. people ask, where, where does grit fit into all this? Well, grit can be like optimism, if you will. Motivation is a little bit. If you look at the three elements, it's closest to need for achievement. You know, okay. the person wants to do well, it's, it's, it's my goal to do well for its own sake. When you look at, you know, motivation or what will really lead someone to be motivated, if you will. But it goes back to what, you know, what companies struggle with for years on, on the sales side. Well, I'll just bring in a motivator, a motivational speaker, and that'll right. change the team's performance. Well, it won't. It won't. Get, people get up to a certain level of production, and they'll have what we call an instant statistics, of course, regression to the mean in terms of behavior. People's behaviors go, go back to their mean level of behavior again and again and again, because again, you can't make someone driven. Past the age of 21, 22, there's not much we can really do at all. As I mentioned with optimism, there's not much we can really do to change the person's overall level of drive. It's kind of either it's there or it's not. And the reason we focus so heavily, again, the other reason we focus so heavily on this, Rob, is because we find that that drive is the easiest characteristic for a candidate to fake in the interview and the most difficult characteristic to accurately rate. That's I want you to say that again. That that That's a really interesting thing because a very common thing I hear from sales leaders are people send their best representative forward in the interview process, okay. right? They, they, they have someone, and it can be hard to get through it. So can you restate that? Because I think that's a gem. Thank you. Yes, we find that drive is the easiest characteristic for a candidate to fake in the interview and the most difficult characteristic to accurately rate, because you're exactly right. Sometimes, you know, sales managers will say the best sale they ever saw out of that person was during the interview. And now they're left asking, wait a minute, what happened to that person whom I interviewed? Where did they go? You know, so that's why we zero in on it so heavily teaching companies to combine an assessment at the front end of the drive characteristics with a well-constructed behavioral interview thereafter to really zero in on those, if you will, like the questions that we provide in our book. All right. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you identify if it's the easiest to fake and the hardest to rate? If, if our listeners are anything like me, and I think that, that they are, I'm like, okay, I buy what you're saying. I buy that it's the hardest to fake. I mean, it's mm -hmm. the easiest to fake mm -hmm. what I said, what I meant, not what I said. Um, it's the easiest thing to fake. How do you see through the charade? How, how, how do you cut through the fog? Good question. Well, really, there's two sides of it. There's the testing side and the interview side. You know, people often ask, well, can't you just, couldn't they just fake their way through a test? And quite frankly, that's one of the problems that many assessments have, particularly for sales candidates, as you can probably imagine, is in many cases, they can be a little bit too easy for sales candidates, especially to size up the test, figure out what it's really looking for between the lines and frankly, fake their way through it. So for example, if a question, a test question, the candidate knows they're applying for a sales job and the test question says, I consider myself very persuasive. Rate this from one, not at all like you, to five, exactly like you. But what are they going to say? Of course, they want to want to say they're a four or five. They want to. I'm a five. Right. I'm a, to, I'm a six on a scale. Exactly. Of one to five. Yeah. Exactly. They want to present themselves positive. That's very understandable. So again, with the drive test, we use a question format designed to eliminate faking. It's called forced choice. So for each question on the drive test, the person gets a series of three statements, all of which are worded very positively. So a question, for example, may say something like, uh, "I consider myself a leader. I have great relationship skills." I'm very organized. Okay. Now, which of these is most like you and which one is least like you? So obviously that forces the candidate to make some very difficult distinctions, hmm. but then it gives us a much better sense of their real priorities. And as they're working their way through those questions, of course, we're constantly monitoring their consistency as they respond to them. Because as you can imagine, if the person does try to fake the test, 
it's going to be very difficult for them to remember consistently what they ranked most and least across the entire assessment. So again, it's designed to be very robust for you in that regard as it goes after those characteristics. Now, on the interview side, the person makes it past the assessment. I never say that any assessment is the be-all end-all. The person does well in the assessment. Now they've earned the opportunity, if you will, to be grilled by you in the interview. That's where you bring them into the interview, keeping in mind that the best predictor of future behavior is previous behavior. So during the interview, we want to ask the candidate about behavior they've engaged in in the past at work that reflects the characteristics that we've decided we would like for them to show for us going forward. So for example, when it comes to need for achievement, one of my favorite questions is, tell me about the greatest goal you've ever accomplished professionally. Really have the person describe it, flesh it out for you. Then you can reflect back to that candidate, you know, you've got to be proud of that. How do you intend to top it? Again, the person high in need for achievement has a plan to top it, and they're excited about the opportunity to tell you about it because you just put them up to the plate and allow them to knock it out of the park. They love that question. Or what kinds of sacrifices have you had to make to be successful? What does that person consider to be a sacrifice? Maybe they had to work a couple of weekends last year, or was it something more substantial? Now compare that to the kinds of sacrifices you've seen your top performers have to make. Or for optimism, tell me about a time when you remained persistent, even though everyone else around you gave up. Now, tell me about another time, you know, just getting those consistent examples. So at the end of the day, combining the well-constructed test with a well-constructed behavioral interview. So for people that have job interviews today, there's going to be people listening to this for a long time. This is, we're going to have thousands of people listening to this for the next several years. And when they listen to this, some of them may have like an interview with a candidate today, the day you listen to it, right? You just gave them three really, like the one that stands out to me that was, speaks to me as a guy who interviews a fair bit, sometimes my clients ask me to participate in the interview process for hiring people. Mm-hmm. That idea of what was your greatest achievement, you must be proud. Now, how do you plan to top it? What a great one. How do you plan to top it? Mm-hmm. That, that's super insightful. I, I, I That's what my question was going to be is like, how do you interview for this stuff? I mean, you've got your test and your test is battle tested and it's bulletproof and it's going to give all kinds of insights. Mm-hmm. That's not going to have a lot of variance because you've got that thing dialed in. It's going to spit, but the interview is going to have a lot of that, a variance, right? Yes. And yes. so how could, I mean, so like sales leaders, like some are really good at interviewing, some are not so good. And it's funny that you bring that up because one of my questions I ask at the end of almost every episode, I ask three questions mm-hmm. uh, to sales leaders. And one of them is when you're building teams and you're interviewing people, do you have a go-to interview question or topic? Mm-hmm. And how do you ask it? And what are you looking for when you do it? Mm-hmm. No one's ever had one like what you just like r- rattled off like that. You know, that, that was, that's some really good ones. Don't get me wrong. Okay. We've had some really good ones, but this thing that's identified, it's designed to identify drive. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Um, how hard is it to learn how to be an interviewer that can dr- interview for drive? How hard? That's a good question. Um, I think with because it's a skill, right? It's just it's a skill it you learn. Yeah, it's like anything else. Yeah. Uh, I think going into the interview process, you're exactly right, Rob. Most people don't know how to interview, or yeah. they they do the best they can. So someone interviewing a sales candidate thinks to themselves, okay, I have a golden gut, or I just know what's what's gonna how that person's gonna look if they're successful as a salesperson. I know what I'm looking for. So they think to themselves, okay, I want somebody with the gift of gab, somebody who likes people, somebody who who seems persuasive. So I'll ask them to sell me something in the interview. I'll ask them, uh, do do they connect well with people? I'll just get a sense of whether when I'm talking with them, do I like the person? All those things can be helpful in terms of things like cultural bit, I guess, but they're not gonna tell us anything about whether the person really will sell for you. You might, you know, there's that classic distinction between can they sell 
and will they sell? And when you're mm -hmm. sitting down with a candidate, just having a, a kind of a conversation with, with them, shooting the breeze, you might learn a little bit about whether you're going to like the person, whether they might fit with your culture, but you're not going to learn anything about whether they're really going to be successful for you. Similarly, with uh, if you ask the candidate to give you a presentation, okay, great. That'll show again that the person has those skills, great diagnosis to determine what they might need in terms of development and training when they come on board. It won't tell you, again, in terms of being battle tested, if you will, what they're really going to do day to day. Are they going to pick up the phone that hundred and first time, if you will? That's why we ask these behavior questions. So yes, it's a skill that you can learn. And really, it's all about making it simple for yourself. It's not black magic. There's a simple series of steps that you can engage in. I recommend keeping it simple in terms of starting out with a, with a Word document. Start with a Word document for yourself, with the questions that you're going to ask. So you are always asking candidates the same series of questions. In our book, Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again, we actually have a download page that includes not only job ad and um, phone screen guide, but a one-on-one but -on -one interview guide, a scorable interview guide. Uh, with all those uh, key core skills that we look at with the, with the drive test, our assessment, it gives you kind of consistent questions that you can use to go after those. But then also in terms of just the way that you go through the person's resume, there are specific questions that you can ask them as you're happy to cover those with you well, today. Yeah, too. well, that's what I was going to say. I'm, I'm in the book right now. I've got it open to, to the page uh, right mm -hmm. now uh, for those people who are going to buy your book after listening to it. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that section towards the back where it's these core skills that you're asking questions in on resume review it's like page 89 or something like that you got page after page after page on what to look for what to look for what to look for it's awesome thank you and um and then you got a whole chapter on interviewing secrets on on how to look for drive mm -hmm. um how again when people get those how hard is it to do those in a way that like helps you like you know, are they the kind of thing that instantly you know how to use them? Is there any any context you need to have before you just start firing those questions off? Well, in terms of the specific questions in the book, they're designed yeah. to be sim simple to ask, if you will. So yeah. you don't need a whole lot of training or background to do that. We do have master classes, if you will, on our website. But in terms of just the, the skill to ask them, it's really just a matter of building that over time and knowing what to listen for. That's why we have that column, what do you listen for, in terms of the candidate's responses. They're going to get you a lot further than some, sometimes some of the questions that people ask, were, you know, what would you do if a client did this? What would you do if a prospect did that? Again, those types of questions, what if questions are great for determining, does the person know the right thing to do, but they won't determine whether they'll actually do them. That's why the questions we're giving you are the ones that focus on the, what the person has done previously, consistent examples. And then before you even get to them, there are ways that you can have the person review their resume with you and find out about what's really caused them to make that move importantly from their previous job to, to this job and really learn the secrets about you know what's really going on underneath, underneath the surface with that person and why they want to make that move now. So happy to discuss that with you today as well, if you'd like. Yeah, maybe we'll break that down and get some of your favorites here in a second, because I think yeah. the ones you rattled off are probably top of mind that you really like because they mm -hmm. packed a punch with me. I want to back up for a second. We got into this so fast. There was a couple of things I wanted to like understand a little better. And I think sure. our listeners, uh, sometimes like the idea, okay, yeah, drive. Okay, I like that. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. Maybe because you're a researcher and you've done this for over 20 years, I bet you have a lot of insight. What do people with more drive do? Like, what's the impact that someone like, and, and I'm going to guess you have ways of, of quantifying drive, like, Everyone has some drive, I would imagine, and, and you've probably been able to overlay performance data to what your drive coefficients look like. Mm -hmm. What what do more driven, maybe, we, I don't know how you look at it, more driven, most driven, average drive, is there any kind of like breakdown of what you can expect when you start going up the drive coefficients? Of course, of course. So is that a weird question? I'm sorry, but yeah, it's an excellent question. It's an excellent right. question. So we get, we get that a lot, you know, what, you know, first, first off, talk, talk about scoring. 
okay. the drive test, when the person completes the assessment, you get the person's overall score on drive at the top of the page. And yes, it goes from one to five. One, the person's, uh, you know, one or two, the, the reds, if you will, those tend to be the people that are focused on kind of dialing it back when, when it comes to uh, their career. And again, they may be looking for some balance. That's absolutely fine. But we find, again, the highest performing hunters tend to be the types of people you kind of wake them up in the middle of the night, if you will. And they're thinking about the next sale they're working on and they're excited about the chance to tell you about it. So yeah. someone's scoring a one on drive or a two on drive in the red zone, if you will, those tend to be the people that don't necessarily enjoy moving into a position where, as I mentioned, they got to knock on a door, get it slammed in their face, knock on the next door like a hunter if you will. An average score on drive is a three, kind of the middle of the bell curve, if you think, if you think of it that way, versus okay. average in terms of their desire to, um, again, excel for its own sake, uh, compete with their peers and win, uh, have that sense of optimism, if you will. And then the fours and the fives on drive, the greens, if you will, those are the ones that we really like, like to zero in on in terms of a high potential candidate. We do find, if you look at performance, it's those fours and fives that tend to have the highest performance on drive. Just spoke with a company that's been using the assessment for about a year or so. Uh, brought, brought on someone on board earlier today. They were telling me they had brought someone on board that had a, a four on, on drive over the last, what, six months turned out to be an individual that has ramped up faster than anyone they've had before in terms of, you know, we talk about behaviors, ramped up very, very quickly now, exceeds everyone else in terms of production and is, is kind, of, kind of going after deals that other people, you know, at a rate that people typically don't do when they first come on board. Because that's what you're looking for in that high drive individual, if you will. So, so average is a three. Correct. Correct. And so I, I want to, I, I like this so much. I want to sit on it for a minute. So I just sure. want to see if I can, I, I, I want to give our listeners like a little more gold here on this one. Sure. So if you were to say, and I know it's impossible because different companies, different everything, like, but if you were to speak in generalities, and as a research, you probably, you don't like me asking that. Um, generally speaking, how much more does a four or five outperform a three, for example? Is it like an order of magnitude? Is it 10% more? Is it 20% more? Or is that an impossible, like, is that too company specific? That's a good question. Uh, broadly, we find about, you know, in terms of high drive individuals tend to outperform low drive individuals or average individuals by, by about 30%. So you can see about a 30%. 30%. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Like that's a big research, If you look at just the research on uh, optimism, Seligman's research, but, you know, the high optimism people were outperforming the low and average optimism, I believe, by about 30%. That's what we find too. So if you look at any given team, you can look almost like a bell Dang. curve. In wow. terms of, yeah. In terms, of, in terms of bell curve, in terms of their, their drive score, you know, any given company hasn't necessarily, when we begin to look at them, hasn't necessarily been assessing for drive in candidates. And so what you tend to find, if you look at their particular group, they tend to have about a bell curve. You know, most of the people are threes, then you have your, your twos and fours, and then your ones and fives. Uh, so that's that's the bell curve in terms of their drive. And the production tends to be about the same. Your highest producers are your fours and fives. Your average producers are your threes. Lowest are the ones and twos. But now, again, as natural attrition occurs, and as more people come on board, we'd like to help companies move that bell curve to the right, as you can imagine, bringing on more high drive individuals, looking at those individuals really kind of setting the bar higher and higher in terms of people who produce more. Because again, if you have somebody with that high need for achievement, and they're very competitive, and they're optimistic, we find that they do consistently produce more than those who, again, are average or lower in those characteristics. All right. So you, I think you just got a lot of people's attention on 30% improvement. If you hire mm -hmm. high drive people instead of average. Mm -hmm. Yes. You can probably win with average drive, but you probably aren't going to have the growth that you want with just average as what I'm guessing is, is it like, is it, is it that simple? It's, it's, it is, it is. Because again, if you look at the population at large, people sometimes ask us, you know, what percentage of the population at large towards high end drive? 
And when we look at the population at large, it's about 20%, give, give or take, that are going to have a high drive score, going to okay. be the bell curve, if you will. Now, translating that, companies will sometimes ask, geez, how many people would I need to assess, would I need to test before I get a candidate who is high in drive? And we generally find that if companies are doing a good enough job screening up front, that about one out of three will end up scoring a high drive score, if you will, as long as they're, they're screening effectively. So it's not that difficult to find as long as you're asking the right questions up front in terms of your screening, in terms of the way you write your job ad, in terms of the questions you ask on a phone screen, for example, et cetera. Okay, now I got the flip side of the coin. So we haven't even talked about how to attract the high drive yet. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to get into that. We're gonna run out of time. We've only got 15 minutes left. I'm mad at myself. Um, and come back. Yeah, well, I, I don't be surprised. I won't be surprised if we if we do that. This is really, really, really interesting to me. It, what's harder, attracting high drive or retaining them? I, like this need for accomplishment. Do you ever get a feel like with these high drive that like they came, they slayed their dragon, and now they got to top it? And I'm going to do it in another company. Like our high drive, are they harder to retain? Like I want to talk about both, attracting them and retaining them. I don't care where we start. You can start where you want to start. Sure. Uh, well, they're, they're, there's a lot of overlap. So starting on the attraction side in terms of okay. uh, order of events, if you will, attracting yeah. the high drive individual is all about showing them how what you're going to offer at your company supersedes whatever they may be getting now. And that's not just in terms of compensation. It's also in terms of challenge. challenge. Okay. There's the challenge element. And then also in terms of giving them the opportunity to show how well they've done. We've had so many companies who come to us frustrated, Rob, saying, you know, we can't understand it. We've had salespeople get up, get up to a certain level of production and then just level off. We don't understand why. We know they can sell. We've seen them do it. What's going on? And so we've asked them, well, what do you look for in terms of candidates? What characteristics? And they'll say, well, we want somebody who's motivated by money or someone who has a mortgage, couple car payments, kids in school, external pressures that motivate them. Well, of course, yes, those external pressures can be very motivating, but we find that at the end of the day, people will work to exceed those or will work to satisfy those. And now they know what they need to phone in quarter after quarter just to maintain or ads. The person motivated by need for achievement will continue to excel. They'll continue to produce. Money's still important to them to be sure, but they look at money the same way that I say a great athlete looks at points in the scoreboard. It's how they show how well they've done rather than their goal in and of itself. So attracting those individuals, showing them how you can give them um, kind of that recognition, if you will, above and beyond what they've gotten before. Um, it, it, we can give them in terms of being a great, um, a great contributor to the company, not necessarily rising up to sales management, because we always, you know, people know about that distinction, you know, the great salesperson moves into the sales management role and can sometimes have trouble, but really looking at what can you give them in terms of overall compensation, not just monetarily, but also in terms of recognition and reward that they couldn't get in any other, other way, a piece of the company, whatever it is uh, that you can give them to honor them, if you will. People really, uh, you know, the high drive people are attracted to that and they're also attracted to high drive environments. Think of cultural fit. A high drive person is not going to be happy in a a low drive environment like droopy the dog if you will they want an environment with people who have energy in it and they have that enth same enthusiasm that they do if you will that's very attractive to them now in terms of keeping them just to honor the time that we have left in terms of yeah. keeping them it's all about making sure that the same thing on the other side the most important thing that we do when we bring somebody who's high drive into a company is we set the stage correctly with what we call the mission meeting in a book having that mission meeting with that person during the person's first week identifying with that person not only what's important in terms of the company's goals but also what's important to them personally and their goals and how are we going to work together to make sure both of our goals are met because that way the person knows that that's the new salesperson knows that you know they're not only learning the ropes that week but they're de they're dealing with a company now they're joining a company now a team now that has their personal needs and their personal goals in mind and is going to make sure that they get those met and we're going to do that together 
And we're again, so that, you know, that meeting really kind of has the opportunity, gives you the opportunity to bond with that person. And then we give you several other steps in the book to really kind of connect with that person the first week too, really making sure that they meet everybody else who's going to be important to them, that they're being honored as they're being brought, brought in, into the company, if you will. You know, everyone has that sign that says, make me feel important. Well, again, the person who's high in need for achievement, as I mentioned, is like that kid in school that just has to get an A. Give them the opportunity to get that report card, if you will. And then as they come on board, find out what's important to them personally in terms of their personal goals and mesh those, combine those with the company's goals and your goals for them it makes it much, much, much more likely the person is going to want to perform well because now, again, they, they, they see the, the congruence, if you will, between the two. So environment and culture is a big deal if you want to get and keep these people, I'm guessing. Then. Sales, yes. leaders, sales leaders can do a lot in creating an environment that will attract them and keep them. Right? Yes? No? Yes. It's like an athlete at the end of the day. In terms of an athlete's performance, you know, all these elements, all the elements of what we might think of as the sales ecosystem, et cetera, come into play. So fit with the company culture, fit with the management style, fit with the compensation plan. We've been talking about personality. And yes, personality is very important, but personality, again, with, with the athlete example, is like raw athletic ability. That's what we look at with the drive test. How fast can they run? How high can they jump? That's important. At the end of the day, that has to now be combined with the management style, the compensation plan, fit with the company culture. All of it comes together to ultimately determine how successful that person will be. What about teams that have like too many twos and threes and they have a low amount of fours and fives? Well, having twos and threes in the herd, if you will, in the team, if you will, does that drive those, those Brahma bulls or those, those like those, does it drive them to want to go to another place or do they coexist with low driven people? Okay. Good question. It really kind of depends on the company and the utilization of the people who score lower. You know, the, the twos and threes, if you will, because any company needs a mix of people. You have your, your classic hunters and your, your, your farmers in some cases. So in some cases, you can team that driver, that high drive person up with someone that can be a great wing person for, for them. And they can be, they can, they can work very, very well together. So that can certainly be fine. You may have somebody who's lower in drive. Maybe they don't want to stay late at night, you know, show up early in the morning, but they can be a great wing person in terms of helping that person accomplish, helping the high drive person accomplish their goal. So to the extent that you can team people up, certainly, but if those low drive people are instead creating an environment where, you know, they're all being asked to do the same thing. And they're kind of, again, dragging everybody's performance down in terms of their attitude, et cetera. Yes, that can create a very difficult environment. So in many cases, it's about the company deciding what their goals are, you know, what, what your ultimate revenue goal, what are your ultimate revenue goals as a company. And then as natural attrition occurs, as you bring people on board, finding those high drive individuals and again, you know, creating a mix maybe with threes, fours, and fives, that, that can be ideal in many cases. You can have threes too, but again, teaming them up with, with the high drives, the, the fours and fives to kind of, you know, make a good kind of wing person, if you will, can often be a good way to utilize those threes. Is there any downside to having too many high drive people on one team? I mean, is it? Good question. It really kind of depends on the company. If you have a company that um, again, if in terms of the way that they deal with their clients or, or customers, they need somebody who can be a good subject matter expert. Sometimes those aren't necessarily always going to be the, the highest drive individuals. You can, you can team people up in that way. So it's a matter of the company deciding what are really what are our goals in terms of meeting with, with our, our clients, meeting with our, our prospects and closing deals. Do we need people who are not only high drive individuals, but people to team up with them who can be good subject matter experts, if you will. In those cases, sometimes combining the high drive individuals with those that maybe not, not, not as high in drive, maybe they're great engineers, if you will, uh, that have a few sales responsibilities, then it can be a, a fine combination. Companies, however, that really need individuals that are, you know, that are constantly hitting the pavement, they can afford having a higher, higher drive team because they just need them, if you will. They need people that are undaunted when they get yeah. that door slammed in their face. I have one more thing I want to ask you, and then um, we'll go through some of these questions as much time as you have. I can't wait to get you know, doc, Dr. Croner's favorite questions. I, I think that'll be what a gift for, for our listeners. So let's say you've hired some high drive people. What's, 
what's the best way to equip them? Like, what do we need to su surround them with? Like, I mean, I'm guessing that drive alone is not enough. I mean, what do we have to give them systems or support? Like, how do you, how do we as sales leaders, what are some advice you have on now that you've got that high drive person, here's how you unleash the beast, right? Here's, here's how you like set it free to do what you hired this, this she or he to do while, while, while they were there. Very good question, Rob. And a related question we'll often get is, as we're bringing a high drive person on board or any candidate on board, we want somebody who's really going to hit the ground running right up at the bat. So the temptation can be, as you can imagine, to find people who score high and drive and kind of throw them out there, throw them to the wolves, if you will, because, well, obviously the person's high and drive, they're going to know what to do. That, that should be you know, problem solved, right? Wrong. It's, there, there, there needs to be more. More needs to be done. So if you want somebody who's going to hit the ground running, my broad recommendation is to look for the individual who has maybe two to three years of relevant previous experience at a similarly sized company, as well as an overall drive score on the drive test of a four or a five. Of course, I say two to three years of relevant previous experience. So the person's had sales 101 because in that example, they want them to hit the ground running it might be a smaller company, for example. I say at a similarly sized company because, of course, companies will sometimes be very attracted to candidates who come from very large companies. Okay, particularly if they have been successful, thinking, okay, great, this person's had success. They must have had world class sales training at this giant company. Surely, logically, they'll bring that same degree of success to bear for us. But the key question is what really led to their success? Was it always their own effort or was it really the fact that they had that brain recognition collateral material that were kind of opening the doors for them, if you will? So looking for the person that's had two to three years of relevant previous experience, along with, again, uh, at a similarly sized company with an overall drive score of a four or a five. So they've had the background, they've, they've dealt with being tested in a situation where they don't necessarily have all those advantages and they have the passion to execute on the knowledge. That can be ideal. Now, in terms of other resources to give the person when they come on board, you'll have, you'll have to be cognizant of how much training they have had. Sometimes companies will test kids just out of school, for example, who are high in drive and they want to bring them on board. Well, that okay, was my right. question I was going to ask. I'm just going to interrupt you because you went sure. there. Like, sure. like, I'm always grateful for the guy way back when that bet on me when I was yep. young, I got, I sold myself into a job. I had no business getting. Okay. And if, if he was to follow all of your filters mm -hmm. on similar things, similar to this, all the things you said, he would have never hired me. And um, because I was young, I was inexperienced. I had no experience. I had certainly no enterprise software experience. I, I freaking sold myself into a job. I had no business getting Then I became one of their very best salespeople. Mm -hmm. And when can a leader know, like, this is a bet worth making? Is it like, trust yeah. your gut? I mean, because uh, I'm sure you've seen that work out and, and blow up in your face. You've probably seen both, right? <laughs> Yeah, of course. And you're exactly right. In many cases, companies will need to bring people on board where they'll, get, they'll be, have the opportunity to give them training. And if that's an opportunity they have, that's great. You know, they just need to understand kind of um, setting expectations. If they do need, you know, if they do have to train someone, just set expectations in terms of when that person's going to start to become productive. We actually wrote the drive test in such a way that the person does not need any sales experience at all, because we're essentially looking for behaviors, uh, preferences, behaviors at work that reflect these characteristics, but aren't necessarily just sales behaviors. So again, sometimes companies will have a subscription to the to the, uh, the drive test and just use it with kids directly out of school at job fairs and we give it to them and they bring them on board and then give them the sales training they need as much as they need team them up with people where, where who have been successful to, to shadow them because you think about that person who is high in need for achievement they're constantly wanting to learn they want to do well they they, they they truly do it so giving them that chance to, to learn and learn effectively like a sponge as you can imagine and again that is what we find that's why testing for those characteristics those non-teachable pieces is critical i would much rather have somebody if i do have the opportunity to train somebody. I would much rather have someone who was higher in drive and lower on experience 
than the other way around, the person who's low in drive and high in experience. Because if you picture those two people starting out, the person low, because everybody wants to make a good first impression, right? So the person who's low in drive but high in experience is going to know what they need to do to make a good first impression on the sales side. They're going to know all the right things to do, and they can probably engage in those behaviors in the short term. But that person who's higher in drive, who lacks experience, is watching. And they're figuring out what it is that they need to do to be successful, and they're taking their time. And over time, as you can imagine, you'll start to see that high drive, low experience person supersede the person who maybe was lower in drive, but higher in experience, because they're figuring out what they, what they need to do. And they have those three elements of drive, particularly that need for achievement, as well as competitiveness, as you can imagine, where they're doing whatever it is they need to do to be successful. They're waking up earlier. They're going to bed later than the person that doesn't have that, that drive, who maybe just, you know, resting on their laurels, if you will. So good. So we have like, four minutes and I want to make sure we finish with an opportunity for you to let people know like what you've done for them, how to get in touch with you and some final thoughts. So maybe, maybe you rattle off Dr. Croner's top three favorite drive interview questions. Like do you got three mm. you can share like your, your, your three favorites, the ones that like are your go-to. Good question. So if I had to narrow them down to three, they'd be similar to the ones that we already discussed relative to drive. Right. So number, number one, um, tell me about the greatest goal you've ever accomplished professionally reflected back to them. You have to be proud of that. How do you intend to top it? For competitiveness, tell me about the last time you were competitive. What did that really look like? Again, if the person has the tendency to talk about maybe they're at the gym the day before someone tried to lap them, always bring it back to the world of work. What did it look like for you when you were competitive at work? Look for the person who relishes a competition. If there's not a competition in place, they will make one because they just enjoy it and they need to know how they stand relative to their, their peers, if you will. And then number three for optimism, tell me about a time when you remain persistent even though everyone else around you gave up. So those are kind of three solid questions. If there's, I guess, one thing that I would want your audience to remember, it's that when you combine a well-constructed assessment with a well-constructed behavioral interviews that we've discussed, you will absolutely stack your team with championship caliber, high-performance sales athletes. Dude, that, how would you not want that? that that's a killer way to finish. Let's, uh, let's, let's give people access to you. How, how do they get more of you? How do they get more sales drive? And talk about your free uh, drive test that you have and, and how that works and how they use it. Let's, let's take a few minutes and make sure people know how to get a hold of you. And, and I hope there's a lot of people that want to like see what it's all about. Thank you. Yes. For any of your audience members who are hiring salespeople, they can go to salesdrive.info and there is a button salesdrive.info. There's a button at the top for uh, a complimentary drive test assessment. And we're going to put that link in the show notes. We'll put all the links you're about to say. I'll just say it now. Everything you're about to say, we will have in the show notes to make it easy. Thank you. And again, also at salesdrive.info, if you're uh, someone who works with sales teams, an advisor of any kind, you can learn about becoming a partner of Sales Drive. And then, of course, our book is Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again, and that's available on Amazon. Okay, you give me a really good final thought. We are, we are done. We're in our last minute. Any last thing you want to say to 45,000 sales leaders that have just like enjoyed hearing about drive at a level that probably none of us have ever considered. This has been even more fun than I thought it would be. <laughs> that last thought you said was a bomb. I loved that, man. That, that was, that was good. You got one more. Do you got any last thing you want to say to everyone before we sign off? Well, I would say your competitors are out there doing the best that they can, interviewing candidates for characteristics they think are going to lead to success, you know, persuasiveness, the gift of gab. They're going to do the best to assess motivation. You now know the three non-teachable characteristics to go after. You know a specific process that you can use to go after them. You don't have any excuses now. Go after them. And don't hesitate to reach out to me. It is my pleasure to be of service to you in any way that I can. That's what I'm here for. His name is Dr. Chris, Co His name is Dr. Chris Croner. Uh, he is helping sales teams all around the world never hire a bad salesperson ever again. I'm guessing you're hoping that he's not doing that for your competitors. Let his work help you do that 
so you can get what you want. And then my favorite three words, and then some. Uh, Dr. Chris, super awesome to have you. Uh, so insightful, so fun. I can't believe how fast the time went by. Thank you so much for joining us, my friend. And I wish you nothing but good luck. And as I say to everyone, happy selling. Thank you, sir. Thank you for the opportunity to be of service. I appreciate it, Rob. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast, where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? But first, this podcast is brought to you by Sales Leadership United, part of the Jepson Performance Group. Our job as sales leaders is hard, and I mean really hard, especially right now. And, and there aren't a lot of resources for sales leaders to turn to. The fact is most companies that spend millions in sales training, sales tools, sales process, and sales people, they spend next to nothing for sales leadership process, sales leadership training, and, and the only sales leadership tools we get are rolled up dashboards. And while it's true that companies should do more to develop the sales leaders on their team, the fact is they don't most of the time. And that, that's why I created Sales Leadership United. It's the world's largest collection of sales leadership assets and resources. Whether you're a new sales leader or one that's been leading sales teams for years, you'll find all kinds of tools to help you create more impact with those you lead faster. You'll find it on Patreon and it's like a Home Depot for sales leaders. You'll find video excerpts of this and all our podcasts in three to five minute segments, all tagged and organized by topic to help you in your sales leadership journey. You're going to find my very best content, over 100 hours of sales leadership training materials, sales meeting materials, leadership and one-on-one -on -one coaching systems, and much, much more. New materials added every single week to keep it fresh. And you're going to find everything you need to become an elite sales leader in a Sales Leadership United. So don't go reinventing sales leadership. Don't go wondering if you have the most recent and modern tools of the trade. Invest in yourself because you're worth it. Tap into a proven training and technique used by some of the most successful sales leaders in the world and head over to Sales Leadership United today. Links to Sales Leadership United in the show notes. I also want to thank you, our listeners. Man, we have over 40,000 people. It's north of 45,000 people each month, and we just keep growing. Uh, I can't wait till we crack that 50,000 mark. Uh, we keep showing up in top sales podcasts and sales leadership lists, and, and I'm just so appreciative. It's mind-boggling. Uh, I just want to tell you thanks. So many of you have been here for all nearly 200 episodes, and, and I love hearing from you. Keep the DMs coming. Keep letting me know how the show has helped you in your sales leadership journey, uh, because I do it for you. I, I, I don't do this for sponsorships or anything else. I do it because I love the sales leadership community. I'm grateful for all of you that I hear from that say it's been good. Uh, I just want to uh, thank you and tell you that I'll keep bringing killer guests every single week. Now, when I first learned about Dr. Croner's work, I was excited to get a hold of it. As sales leaders, our ability to build and lead winning teams is crucial to our success. We, we have to achieve results through the efforts and the impacts of others. So who you choose for your team and how you attract and select them is a big deal. And I mean a really big deal. So when I heard about Dr. Crona's work on never hiring a bad salesperson ever again, I was more than just a little intrigued. And I loved this conversation. I've seen a lot of work around hiring for coachability. I've seen a ton of work around hiring for curiosity. And I point those out because they are often highlighted as a top predictor of salespeople's success. But drive, drive, drive's a concept that I haven't heard people talk as much about. 
And I love it. I love how Dr. Croner has broken this down into the subsets that he identified as need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism. And the discussion around all of those was fantastic. I encourage you to go back and check him out. Get your hands on the book and see what he has to say about it. It's, it's, it's really, really, really great. Um, but finding people who are wired with these attributes that's going to create significant advantages. And I love the research that he has around what happens with those who have drive. And maybe the part of this that resonated most deeply with me was that while drive may be the most important or predictive characteristic, it's also the easiest to fake in the interview process. And that's why you're going to want to check out his work because it will help you add method to the madness of filtering through your candidates of, to find those with drive. And if 20% of the population has high drive and those people that have high drive do 30% more business than those with average drive, then creating systems to help find these characteristics, that's worth exploring. But it seems to me that rather than hunting for these people, you should instead build an environment that attracts them. Go back and pay close attention to the things Dr. Croner shares that attract high drive candidates, and especially his insights on how to support the high drive salespeople. We have three roles as sales leaders. Number one, the development of those we lead. Number two, to create an environment where every single motivated member of the team can thrive. And number three, the accomplishment of the company objectives. And if you get one and two right, then you're on your way to hitting number three. So be the builder of the environment that attracts high drive salespeople. More important, be the builder of the environment where any high drive salesperson can thrive. Building an environment like this is kind of like being a gardener. We need to create soil where all kinds of plants can grow, not just a narrow band of, and I'm doing my air quotes, kill-proof plants. Uh, when I became a bachelor again and I started getting my new house all over again, I wanted to have plants in my house. And, and given that I'm in a smaller townhome instead of the big home that I used to have with lots of windows, I have less light. And so that made a narrower band of plants that I could get. And then when you add on top of that, that I suck, I travel a lot, I'm, I'm gone a lot, I can't water all the time. That made the band narrower. I got cactus and snake plant and bamboo and stuff like that. So you want to be the kind of gardener that you don't have to have the narrow band. You want to have great soil where you can plant any plant you want, and then you have to feed them. I'm talking about water. I'm talking about sunlight. I'm talking about fertilizer. So what's the sales equivalent of that? That's something that I'd get into in Sales Leadership United. You need to feed them. What, what are those sources of feeding them? What are those sources to help them grow? How do you feed your salespeople? That's something that's worth spending time on this week. Spend some time on how you choose to feed the salespeople. And then you should ask yourself, how many of your existing salespeople are high drive salespeople? And how can you attract more of those high drive salespeople? And most of all, how does your environment help those members of your team thrive and not just survive? Because hiring is arguably the most challenging part of sales leadership. A good hire will fuel massive growth. A bad hire will cost you far more than the salary of that person. So consider adding the search for drive in your hiring efforts, because those attributes are things that will give your team a leg up as you navigate an ever-changing modern sales environment. And here's how we'll wrap this one up this week. We're in an environment where so much has changed, there's not a battle-tested playbook anymore. Who you hire may never have be more important than it is right now. And the, this concept of drive, it's something you 100% should consider making part of your hiring strategy. So Dr. Croner, thank you so much for joining me. Your work in this field of what predicts sales success 
is more than just really interesting. It's critical. I appreciate you sharing your insights with the thousands of listeners who download this show all around the world. I encourage everyone to check out the materials you've shared with our listeners that are in the links of the show notes. Go on that link to get his free trial test to get a sense of what you can find when you look for Drive. And then connect with them on LinkedIn. Check out the Sales Drive website and start being intentional about how you search for Drive. Finally, I got to thank each of you, our listeners. If you liked this episode, please give us that five-star review on iTunes. It goes so far in helping me get the best guests in the world on our show. Many of you have asked how you can support the show. You can do it two ways. The first is to check out Sales Leadership United. I have a link to it in the show notes. For the cost of lunch, you can make an investment in yourself that will be a game changer. But the easiest way you can support us is to share this episode with your friends and colleagues. Share the show with someone who needs to hear it. And then be elite, live strong, Chase your passions and don't worry, just execute because we got you. Thank you so much for joining the Sales Leadership Podcast, the award-winning sales leadership podcast for those sales leaders looking to create legendary impact to those they lead. The greatest compliment you can give is to share this show and any of your favorite episodes with your fellow sales leaders, social media followers, or other communities you're part of. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by the Jepson Performance Group. If you want to discuss any of the topics discussed on the show, want to level up your leadership impact, discuss executive coaching services, or even include me at an upcoming event, hit me up at rob at jetpg.com. That's rob at jeppg.com. And to those of you working to become a legendary sales leader, I salute you and wish you much success on your journey. Whenever you need someone in your corner, you know where to find me.